Grab your Bible. You know where we what we're doing. Um, I said it earlier. I'll say it again. There's Bibles on the back table back there. You need a Bible. Um, I know you probably got it in your phone. If you don't, I'm certain you can get one. They're free. But you need a Bible. The importance of having the Bible is the fact that I'm just up here talking. It doesn't matter ultimately what I say. It matters what God says. And the cool thing is he wrote that down. So you can take it with you and have it whenever you want it. Uh, we have tons of Bibles. So different translations. So take, take one. Give it away uh, if you've already got one or whatever. But go to Exodus chapter 7. That's where we are at the moment. There's note sheets back there, too, by the way, if you want to take notes. As I always say, the notes are not for you. The notes are so you can have what you need to pass on what, you, uh, what God shows you in his word. So we're in chapter 7 of Exodus. We're following the story of God and uh, not the story of Moses, not the story of Adam, not the story of, of any of these people, the story of God. Uh, we started in the beginning. We started with creation, and we moved down through uh, the sin of Adam and Eve and the promise of God that he would provide deliverance through a child of Eve. Um, we've, for the most part, been following that storyline of who is that seed that is to come. The Bible follows that storyline because ultimately that's what the whole book is about. It's, it's, the God who, it's God who would become man and dwell among us, Jesus Christ. So we're following that that seed. But right now we've moved down through the lineages, we've moved through Noah, we've moved through the flood, we've come past all that. We've gone through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we've gone to the 12 tribes, we've gone to, they've been in exile in Egypt. We saw last week where God called Moses to go in and, and to lead the people out and revealed himself in the most powerful, awesome way as the I am, the eternal God uh, last week. We talked about that. So now we're going to pick up this week and continue on, and we're going to look at the power of God. So last week was the identity of God. Who is he? This week is the power of God. Um, and this particular account is one display of his power that stands above all, perhaps, that it has been remembered for millennia uh, in peoples all around the world. So Exodus chapter 7, I'll read a few verses here, and then we'll get into it. Start in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Lord, your word is awesome. I say that every week. I feel like I say those exact words every week, but I get reminded of it every week. Um, today especially, because power and awesome seem to go together uh, in, in a astounding way. Uh, Lord, it's easy to read this and look at this, what we're going to go through today, and we're going to go through a whole lot really quick, but Lord, it's easy to look at this and, and feel like we're reading a Chronicles of Narnia account or some kind of fantasy story. It happened. It's real. These people existed, and whether or not we believe you did these things determines what we think about you. And I pray, God, that the faith of those in the room would fall on you. And that we would all 
be moved by what your word says in this account. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I usually uh, come up with an illustration to open up with and uh, give you something cool along those lines. not going to do that this week because the story is the illustration. In fact, it's really hard to illustrate something that's already so well illustrated. (laughs) It's the absolute power of God. And as I said earlier, perhaps only the only the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ is a more powerful display, maybe. I mean, this is huge. But what's awesome about this massive demonstration of God's power is at the core of it, there's a very simple, weak, human servant um, who is obedient by faith to stand in front of the impossible. All right? And I put on those sheets every week the kind of general thought or theme of what we're looking at today. So I'll tell you what it says. If you don't have a sheet, it's fine, but, but I put them on there. It says, God uses us, his people, to represent him before the world in order to display his power and sovereignty over Satan's sin and death and to deliver those who put their faith in him. All right, if you were to sum all of this up in a sentence that's relative to us, that would be it. All right, chapter one, or chapter 7, verse 1. And again, if you have a Bible, you're going to be in good shape because I'm going to reference some things maybe you're going to want to turn to, but not everything will be on the screen. So uh, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you. That's key. Don't miss that. It's not like Moses became a god. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Imagine telling Pharaoh, and I don't have to take the time to establish who he was, but just walk up, stand in front of him, and say, let him go. Now, there's two of them, as if that makes any difference, you know. Let him go. Um, there's an awesome picture. He says, I made you like God to Pharaoh. There's an awesome picture here, and, and we shouldn't be surprised of Jesus that's materializing throughout all of this, just like there was with Abraham, just like we've already seen with Isaac and Jacob and Moses as well. His life is an illustration, even in this moment. Moses, who is a man, is given authority of God, and he's sent to challenge the power of man and evil and to free enslaved people of God. He is as God to them to speak God's word to them. Jesus... A man, born a man, has the authority of God because he is God. He is sent as well to challenge the power of sin and death and uh, to free enslaved people of God. And he is God to them and he is God's word. We also have the same challenge. We are sent as men and women, given the authority of God if you're a believer, to challenge the power uh, of both man and sin that's enslaved people to sin. And we are as Christ to them, and we speak God's word to them. So th- this is not just like some magical, oh, God you know, made Moses God. It's not that. He's painting a picture. He's always painting a picture. And in this moment, he's using Moses and Aaron to paint a picture of Christ and God's plan of acting through people to redeem people. He doesn't have to, right? He could do it however he wants to. That's something never to forget. But think about the fact here. We know that 
Egypt had multiple gods. We'll look at them in a minute. But multiple gods. In fact, most nations did and still do. Many nations still do have multiple gods. Think about the weight of that. It's not that you're accountable to one god. You're accountable to stacks of gods. Think of the weight of that for a minute. Like if, if you please this one, you might not be pleasing this one. Or you might be pleasing this one, but not this one. Or you might please these three, but not those five. I mean, the weight and the oppression spiritually, the suffocation of being underneath those gods, pushing them down into this like impossible weight of hopelessness, you know. Uh, a lot like today, there are idols today. There are even in America, there are places where people have idols set up for days and, and just are they happy for it with you? Are they not happy with you? Are they all, are they all together? Do they all agree? Are they on different pages? Is this one going to be okay? Is that one going to be okay with me? It's also like sin. Maybe you're like, well, I'm, I don't worship idols. I, I don't do that kind of thing. Okay, good. Well, maybe it's like sin, especially with addictions. We stack sin on sin on sin on sin, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and we feel like, well, we can never get out of it. Or God might forgive me for this one, but he'll never forgive me for that one. Or he might forgive me for these two or three, but not for that one over there. There's chains, there's oppression, there's hopelessness that comes with whether it's idols or sins or these gods. Um, and apart from God's overwhelming power of deliverance, there would be no hope. That's one of the key things here. It's not just that God is displaying power. These people would never be free apart from God's display of power. Overwhelming power. And the same is true for us. We will never be free of sin. I don't care how good you think you are. You're never going to be free of sin. It's not possible apart from his overwhelming power. All right, look at verse 3. It says, but... I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. (laughs) Go and tell him he won't hear a word you say. Would you still go? I mean, think about it. I mean, we're told to go and tell the gospel, and we, we don't have any guarantee that anybody listens to us. But what if you had a guarantee that nobody will? Oh, God, why in the world bother This is sovereignty and responsibility side by side. It's not either or, it's both. It's not either or, it's both. And there are theologians and seminarians and things for generations and centuries that have tried to establish one box or the other. It's not possible and it shouldn't be possible. It's both God's absolute sovereign control and the responsibility of man. We'll look at it a little bit. Uh, but if you really want to get into deep discussions, go to Josh's small group tonight and you can talk about it. You're welcome. Or you can go to David's on Friday and talk about it there. But we will talk a little. Only God determines salvation is the point here. It's our job to preach. Only God determines salvation. Moses' job is to go preach. It's up to God to determine the results of that, not Moses. His job is only to go. And he explains why. God explains why multiple times. We may not understand how sovereignty and responsibility work together, but we know why they work together because he says so. Multiple places, I'll show you one. Exodus chapter 10. If you flip like two pages, you'll see in verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. So all of them. Why? 
Because that way I may show these signs of mine among them and that you, Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord, that you may know that I'm the Lord. Generations will tell of this moment in time. Generations. Well, how do I know that? Because we're standing here today doing it. How many thousand, two years ago was this? Thousands of years. And God's not wrong for doing this for a few reasons. Number one, he's worthy of it. I mean, he is worthy of this kind of worship. He's worthy of it. We're not. He is. He also created. If he created everything, it's his. He can destroy. He gives life and he what? Takes it. He takes it away. Think about that for a second. What I just say. He takes it away. So that's in his own word. It's, but he's not wrong for that because it's his. He's sovereign over creation. He rules his creation. He can rule it how he chooses. He, as long as he doesn't contradict his own word. And don't forget, no matter what you think about how he's dealing with Pharaoh, he's rescuing slaves. He's rescuing slaves. I find that we always celebrate things like that in our own world, like set the slaves free, do this, go. What, what do we need to do to Putin? I don't know. Pick the topic. You see these horrible, oppressive things that are going on, and we want somebody to go in and blow them up and get them out or whatever else. But then when God does something like that, it's, oh, well, why? why? What, he's awful. He's horrible. He's terrible. Don't forget he's rescuing slaves. And then one other thing here, he's hardening The heart of sinners, listen to me, who have a hard heart. He's hardening the heart of sinners who have a hard heart. Don't forget that. Now, before you think that that's an unfair judgment, the new covenant, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the new covenant, if you're a Christian in this room, you are part of it because it's the promise that is within the gospel that God provides a new covenant with those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that covenant states... That God will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh or a soft heart. He will remove our heart of stone and do the same thing. He will remove our hardened heart. So basic point I'm getting to here is we all have a hard heart. We're all sinners. We all have a hard heart. In fact, Paul said we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were following in Ephesians 2. We were following the course of the world. He says we're following Satan. All of us. That's what he says, black and white, in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. So here's the real question. The real issue is not why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. The real issue is why did he soften yours? That's the real issue. Whenever we come to the sovereignty and responsibility discussion Uh, predestination, whatever all the wild words are. This is the easiest and straight thing that I want you to come to. Why did God, don't worry about why he does or doesn't somebody else. The question is, why did he save you? And I promise you, you're not going to answer that outside of he loves me. And then you're going to say, well, why does he love me? And you sure can't answer that. Because I love you, but you're not worthy of it. Know what I'm saying? You're not worthy of it. And that's the point of grace. Anyway, 
Note the people that God is using here. Uh, chapter 7 of Exodus, where we are, look at verse 7. It says, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83. That's real time 83. These are not warriors. These are not miracle workers. These are back desert. We'd say backwoods back in the east, but here we'll say back desert. These are, you know, backside of the desert hillbilly old folks that are just, you know, I mean, this is, is, crazy a choice of people that he that he gets in fact we already know Moses is a murderer and a fugitive and now we know he's an old guy in a sense uh Exodus 4 you can turn back there flip a few pages back Exodus 4 tells us that in verse 1 Moses says uh you know what they're not going to believe me they're not going to listen to me they're going to say you haven't heard from the Lord he's talking about his own people when I go tell them hey I saw the Lord in the desert they're going to be like what We don't believe you didn't do that. That didn't happen. So God gives him a couple of signs to perform, like turning his staff into a snake. But Moses still complains in verse 10 and says, oh, I'm not, I can't speak. I I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't have that royal tongue. I can't get up. I'm not a politician. You know, in fact, maybe I stutter or I'm slow of speech or whatever. God's like, who made your mouth? You know, I got this. And ultimately, Moses just throws his hands up in verse 13. He says, oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Just send somebody. So this is quite the hero that God has chosen. You know what I'm saying? And ultimately, God gets mad. And then, but he gives Moses Aaron, sends Aaron, Moses' brother, to go help him and go along with him and do this thing. So this is entirely God's plan, design, and work through weak men. It's not like God rose up an army to go fight Pharaoh. Why is God using this kind of person? Air conditioning's real loud all of a sudden. Why is God using this kind of person? So that's what's up, Dave. So only he gets the glory. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God sends these two of all people to go challenge the first Great world power. And it begins with Moses demanding that Pharaoh let the people go, just like God said. And Pharaoh laughs and then doubles their workload and suffering. And then that brings us to this moment we're in in chapter 7, where God's explaining to Moses that he has the authority of God and there is a plan. Look at verse 4, and let me continue here. Exodus 7 verse 4 says, it goes on. I will lay my hand on Egypt and I'll bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Literally, it says they will know that I am the I am. Remember when you see all caps, that's that word I am. We looked at it last week. So he's, he's literally saying they're going to know. It'd be like me saying they're going to know I am David. Like he's saying his name there. They're going to know that I am I am. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people from among them. So Moses goes back and Aaron throws down the staff that God gave him. 
and it becomes a serpent. But then this happens. Look in verse 11, chapter 7 there in verse 11. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Now, don't race away to explain that like it didn't really happen. It did. It says it did. It did. They did. Did the same thing. My grandfather once told me years ago, David, never underestimate the power of the enemy. Talking about Satan. That is an absolute truth. Don't think that Satan is not able to do miracles. I don't have time to go into that, but that is not the case. Matter of fact, Revelation says in the end times that he'll do them so well that even the elect could have been deceived if God hadn't intervened in them. So he is absolutely able to do miracles. So don't miss that. That's also important because if you follow preachers or people who do miracles, you better be careful what they say. Better be careful what they say because the act of a miracle can't prove anything. All right? In a sense. In this case, they do the same thing as, as uh, Deidre mentioned earlier in her prayer. Look at verse 12. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff, notice it said Aaron's staff, not Aaron's serpent. All right? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So they turned into serpents, but then the text is referring to them as staffs. So uh, still Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the listen to them as the Lord had said. Staff here is, don't think of it, I know he's a shepherd and, and, it, and it gets promoted like a shepherd's staff. But don't think of it like a shepherd's staff, especially in this moment. It's more like a ruler's staff. So like a king would have a, a staff, you know, or a, a conquering king would have a, a staff that he would hold, or scepter, that's the word would have a scepter that he would lift to rule. When he's holding that, he's, he's ruling. That was the point. And so he lays his staff down, his scepter down, and the Egyptians lay their two down. And in that moment, God's staff consumes their staff. It's a moment where God, in the very beginning, in a, almost a simple way compared to what's coming, is displaying his power to rule over their power to rule. And so the battle begins. Why these plagues? We're going to look at them very quickly, but why these particular plagues? Uh, Numbers 33.4, you don't have to turn to it, but Numbers 33.4, recounting the story, it says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. So God's moment here is to set his people free, but it's also a battle with the gods of Egypt. Now, I'm not saying there are other gods because the Bible clearly says there is one God. But just as Satan is able to mock or mimic or do things, there are demons, there are powers, there are forces, Paul said. Forces, rulers and authorities, principalities and powers in spiritual places. So these gods uh, that the Egypts were, that the Egyptians are worshiping are not just necessarily stones or statues. Spiritual forces behind these particular things as well, okay? So, I'm not gonna go down them all, but I'll give you a few uh, Egyptian gods. There was Hopi, and I don't know if I say all these right, but there was Hopi, which was the, the Nile. The Nile was seen as the god Hopi. There was Hect, which was a frog or a toad god. That there was statue or made that way. And if you think about ancient Egypt, even what you've seen in movies or pictures or whatever else, you can see that you can imagine these animals. There was Apis or Menevis, which was a bull god. There was Hathor, which was the cow god. There was Kanum, which was a ram god. 
There was Ra, which was probably their ultimate god, which was the sun god, the god of the sun. Um, There was Horus, which was the god of the sky. And then there was Pharaoh, who was understood to be God on earth, that he was the representation of Ra, the sun god on the earth. So these are gods, all of these and, and others controlled the sky. They controlled the weather. They controlled the harvest. They controlled the food supply. They controlled water. They controlled fertility. They controlled children and the growth and development. They controlled posterity. And the success of children. So here goes God into action. The first one, I'm not going to read them all. You can look at them as we go if you want and go back and read them. I'm just going to give you a survey. But the Nile is the first thing attacked. Uh, the Nile is first. What's the power? We're going to look at what's the power of, I'm going to say I am because that's his name. So what's the power of I am in the moment? And then what's the response of the Egyptian powers? Or gods, okay? So the power of I am with the Nile. He turns the Nile to blood for seven days. The fish die. The land stinks. It doesn't turn red. It doesn't get like blood color. It turns into blood. If you've ever smelled coagulated blood, blood alone stinks. Imagine that a river flowing of it and everything in it very clearly is going to die because they don't breathe in blood. And then you've got the stink of fish too. Even the water, it says, in the canals... And their pots, anything that was gathered from the Nile it, or, or a tributary from the Nile, anything that came out of that now becomes uh, blood. So it's not just that the, there's something upstream happened. The act of God. So they dig wells to find water wherever they can, try to find water to survive for the seven days. The response of the Egyptian powers or gods, the magicians, what happens? Do the same thing. Do the same thing. And I love what Deidre said. It's one thing that's always struck me. I don't understand why that's impressive. Because if I was Pharaoh, I would want the blood gone. It doesn't do me any good that you can make more blood. All right? If, if, if there's a gang war and you're stronger than these gangs, then stop the war. Don't come in and start shooting too. How's that helping anything? All right? But anyway, so they do the same. Pharaoh ignores it and it says... His heart remained hard. So because the Egyptian magicians could do it, he just ignores it. And it says his heart remained hard. Then you have the frogs. They come next. Again, the power of I am. They swarm up out of the Nile into every inch of every home. They're in your clothes. They're in your closets. They're in your food. They're in everything. They're popping out of your shoes. They're in all of everything. And they came out of the Nile. What was the condition of the Nile? Bloody, stinky, rotten fish. So imagine what these guys smell like at this point. When this particular plague ends, the frogs all die right where they are. And it says that they heap them up into giant heaps and they stank. No kidding. Imagine now the smell of dying, rotten frogs in, you know, perhaps millions piled. Uh, The response of the Egyptian powers or gods, the magician do the same thing. Same thing again. As I noted already, ridiculous because we don't need more. And here it says he, Pharaoh, hardens his heart. It says he hardens his heart. Then come the gnats, the power of I am. It says the dust turned to swarms of insects. It says, uh, in this case, it says gnats. It could be gnats. It could be flies. It could be lice. All of those are similar words. But we know what the dust is like. Here, that, that really comes into play. Imagine a dust storm, uh, you know, a haboob blowing in. 
And, and as it's blowing in, it turns into gnats. Man, let's stop and think about it. That's pretty wild. Okay, so anyway, they come in. Imagine trying to live through that. The resp- and you don't have air conditioning. You can't shut up your doors and windows like we do. And all, There's no escape, okay? Uh, response of the Egyptian gods or powers. The magicians try to mimic this one, but they fail. And they acknowledge, this is, they say, the finger of God. They acknowledge this is the finger of God. I don't have time to go into it, but Jesus would even refer to this moment at one point in the New Testament to establish who he was. But they say this is the finger of God. Pharaoh, it says his heart was hardened or remained hardened. Perhaps it stayed in that state or perhaps God is acting at this moment on Pharaoh's heart. Either way, that's what it says. Pharaoh is a stubborn guy, boy. The flies come next. This is the fourth one. Power of I am. Pests is what it says. Pests come up. It could be, what do we think of when we think of pests? You know, roaches. Uh, it could be flies, obviously. It could be, it actually could be vermin, like rats. Some believe it was rats. It even could be wild beasts. Same word translates there. Some believe it could have been that, that I overrun with lions. I mean, it could have been anything that would be seen as a, uh, a, fly, a, a horse, horse flies, another one. Anything like that could be could be put in there, but flies is probably a strong word. But something changes here. The people of God are suddenly exempt. So the assumption is up until this point, even though the suffering's been going on, the people of God have been kind of in the middle of it all. But at this point in time, it says in Exodus chapter 8, if you're reading along in verse 23, God says, I will put a division between my people and your people. So now what God is doing is he's saying it's, it's not now it's about who is God of their people. Not just who can conquer, not just who's the strongest, but who can lead and deliver, who can conquer while also protecting. Who is God of their people? What can you do, Pharaoh, to protect your people from what I'm doing? Because I can do to you and protect my people at the same time. For us, this is like super important because God's sovereign power to rule also includes his power to protect. Which means no matter what situation we find ourselves in, even in the middle of the horrors that may be around us, he is powerful to protect us. I'm not saying he always will, but he's powerful to do it. Till this point, it doesn't appear that he did, but now he is. Now he is. So... The response of the Egyptian powers here. The magicians are irrelevant at this point. They're not even in the mix anymore at this point anyway. Pharaoh, he hardens his heart. Again, he hardens his heart. The fifth one, livestock. So this is disease or pestilence that comes on him. Power of I am. He attacks the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. It says it in there. They all get diseased. They all die. Uh, they, they begin to, at the very least, die. Um, again... God makes a distinction with his people here. But this time it's slightly different because the distinction is for anyone who has faith in his word. Don't miss this. It's not just that, oh, if your blood is Israel. At this point, it's if you have faith in his word. Look at Exodus 9 verse 20. It says, then whomever feared the word of the Lord, among, look, among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field and they died. So you see that 
even God made a distinction here, but he still gave an allowance to the Egyptians and said, I'm going to do this. If you believe in me, take shelter. If you believe in my word, take shelter, whether you're Hebrew or not. The response of the Egyptian gods or powers, again, magicians are irrelevant. And Pharaoh, it says, his heart was hardened or remained hard or God again. Verse 6, things begin to move here. This is the halfway point. And the power of I am here with the boils. It says they threw soot from a kiln into the air and it became sores. It spread around all the people and it became sores or boils on man and beast. Man and animal. There's a transition here to Moses directly. You'll notice that Moses now starts to speak. So Moses is getting it now. He's not even, it's not going through Aaron at this point. Now Moses has taken over and speaking. You also have a clear mention that God specifically hardens Pharaoh here. And it doesn't say there was a distinction between the people of God and, and Egypt, but it's implied at this point that there was. But the response of the powers, again, the magicians, look, this time is different. The magicians are mentioned and they're ashamed in front of the power of Moses' God. They're ashamed at this point. In front of Moses' power and the power of his God. And Pharaoh, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So at this point, at the very least, God has taken control in a sense and said, nope, hardens his heart. Then comes hail mixed with fire. Again, power of I am. He says, I could have killed you already, but I'm doing this for my glory. Care how you feel about that? That's what he says. You have thunder and hail mixed with fire. It kills man and beast. Provides a warning here. If you're a believer, take shelter. So again, he says, if you're a believer, take shelter. Uh, this one is reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When he rained down fire and hell from heaven. So if these people knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's likely, whether they believe God did it or not, that's likely. This would have been a flashback. You know what I mean? I would have been thinking real hard on this one. No uh, distinction here. Again, there's no hell in Goshen where they are. After this one, Pharaoh admits, you know what? Maybe I sinned this time. You know what? Maybe, maybe I sinned this time. Not that he's a sinner, just that maybe this time I went just a little bit too far. You know, and Moses calls him out. He said, I know you don't truly fear God. So I like people who come to faith when times are hard and then they drift away when it gets better. You know what the real issue is? They don't fear God. And, and what I mean by that is, fearing God is as simple as this, recognizing who he is and recognizing who you are. If you do those two things, you could describe yourself as having the fear of God. Uh, but it's usually, we might want to recognize him, but not us. Or we might want to recognize us, but not him. But if you put them both in place, you'll understand what the fear of God is. So the response of the Egyptian powers here, the magicians, the servants, it says now they're hardened Their hearts are hardened. And Pharaoh, it says, he hardens his heart. Then comes locusts. We're almost done. Locusts, the power of I am here in verse in uh, the eighth uh, plague. It says, the east wind blew all night and locusts come and eat everything that's left. What do you think is left? You know what I mean? Imagine what what it would look like. I I was sitting out at my house in the front yard yesterday thinking through this when I was studying. Imagine what it's like. Um. 
It says, so many come that they darken the ground, and the people beg Pharaoh, let these people go. They even say, isn't Egypt already a disaster? It's already demolished. Pharaoh decides to let them go, but he tries to make a deal. He says, okay, you can go, but leave your kids. So I can have a next generation workforce, is what he's thinking. Obviously, that isn't going to happen. They say no, um, and... Pharaoh appears to recognize the sin, but he's just looking for relief here, not actual repentance. And it doesn't say there's a distinction, but it's assumed, again, that God's people are separate. And the response of the Egyptian powers, Moses' servants now and the magicians say, let them go. Egypt is trashed. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Not yet. Then comes, there's two more. The ninth one, darkness comes. The power of I am. It is supernatural, paralyzing darkness for three days. It says they wouldn't get out of their bed because they couldn't see to take a step. Paralyzing darkness. Uh, Again, there's a distinction. But this time, it being pointed out is a huge deal. Because it rules out scientific explanation. How is it possible to have absolute blackness over here till you can't even get out of bed, but over here the sun's shining? It's not possible. It's supernatural. God is controlling this. Either you believe that or you don't. That's the point. God is controlling it. So either you believe it or you don't. It's his power. Again, Pharaoh tries to bargain. Okay, take the kids. Kids? Take the kids. But leave your, leave your sheep, leave your oxen, leave all that stuff. Uh, Pharaoh, I mean, excuse me, Moses again says, no, Pharaoh says, fine. The next time I see you, somebody's going to die. You, somebody's going to die. There's going to be death the next time I see you. And he's right. The last one, again, the well, real quick, the response of the Egyptian powers, the magicians in the case of the darkness, they're irrelevant again. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart here. So the last one, the firstborn. Now we talked about this at Easter, so I'm not going back over this now, um, in detail, but the Passover is an amazing account. And uh, if you were with us with Easter, you already heard that. So I won't go back into great detail, but we'll look at it real quick. The power of I am here. All the firstborn, man and animal, die. And it provides a way of escape through his people by faith. God provides a way of escape again, like he has before. But this time it's through his people and by faith. Um, the Pharaohs were seen as Ra's power on earth. They were seen as his manifestation, like a son of Ra, that the sky god Horus merged with Ra, become this all-powerful god, and then empower, bestow divinity on the Pharaoh, and then the Pharaoh has authority to even guide people through death, is the way it was understood. So this is the ultimate victory for I Am, Ra's Son on earth, the Pharaoh, is powerless against the darkness, which Ra was the sun god, and against death. He can't even save his own son from death. In fact, God, I am's own son, would also face death, but he would do it by design to conquer death. So, as a result of this, what happens? The magicians and all of Egypt say, get them out, let them go. And Pharaoh says, go. And they're free. Power of God in absolute authority and firm display. Let them go and they're free. Story's not over. We're going to get to the rest of it next week. But where do we bring this today? Really quick, this is all going to play out again. If you go read Revelation, you'll see that almost the same plagues 
play out again. You have a father-son spirit. You have God, Moses, Aaron. In the end, you have a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet. The same kind of thing. You have two witnesses that rise up in Revelation 11 that can control plagues, that turn water to blood. It says a third of the earth's water will become blood. Revelation 16 says spirits go out into the world like frogs covering the earth. Revelation 16 talks about bulls and sores. Revelation 9 describes demons as locusts and a plague. There's disease on wild beasts, death, hell, uh, hail, fire, darkness, all the same thing. Revelation plagues come to a close when Christ, the firstborn who died but is alive, returns. So what do we do with all this today? I'm done, but what do we do with all this today? Well, first, it's easy to look at this like an entertaining movie. You know, and like these events didn't happen, but they did. Don't let this turn into a fantasy for you, especially when we talk about the Red Sea splitting next week. Don't don't let it turn into a fantasy for you. But ask yourself, why did God put it in his word? Why did he make it in his word? Well, it's real simple. One reason. So you would see God and learn to know him. So I'm going to ask you this. What can you see about God from this? How do you see him through this historical record in his word? Stop a minute and think. You don't have to answer me. I'm not going to tell you because I'm asking you. And you might see him different. You might even be a little offended by some things in there. I don't know. How do you see him as a result of this in his word? And then how does knowing that, whatever it is you see, how is that going to change the way you walk out of here today? I'm not going to give it to you. It's in you. How's that going to change the way you walk out of here today? What's that going to do to change your life? So many times we underestimate God's power, but we forget that he is instantly able to immediately accomplish the impossible. He is instantly able to immediately accomplish the impossible. That should shape our lives. Last verse I want you to see because you may know it, but it's a powerful verse. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God. We just talked about the power of God. You just saw an unreal illustration of the power of God. And he say, Paul says that the gospel is that power for salvation to those who believe. So the question is this, do you believe? Do you believe? If you believe, I don't care how hard the chains are. I don't care how overwhelming the sin is. We just talked about the power of God. That power is able. If you guys will stand up with me and uh, take a minute and close your eyes. And, and, and I, I don't ask you to close your eyes out of sensationalism or out of an attempt to be overly spiritual. I ask you to close your eyes because I close mine too. And, and I just want you to be able to stop a minute and just focus on what we just talked about, what's just been said, what's just been heard. And I'm going to pray, but I want you to take a second and just think a minute. This God, I am, is able to save. 
He is able to save. The cross was not an act of weakness. The cross was an incredible display of the power of God to come as a man and remain on that cross through unimaginable agony for you and for me. Why? Because the only way to beat death is to die. But then with power that goes beyond all understanding and explanation, he rose from the dead. And that's the gospel. That for sinners like me, there is forgiveness, there is salvation because he paid that debt and he conquered death for me. That is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And if that's you today and that hadn't been a decision you made, today's the day. It's easy. You do it yourself. You don't need me. You tell him. I trust what I'm hearing today. I trust that you are who you say you are. I know for a fact that I'm a sinner and I'm sick of it. Sick of this life. Save me. Rescue me. However you want to say it, you say it. And you ask him to do that. And then you can come tell me. You can come tell Josh. You can come tell anybody in this room. Anybody in this room that knows the Lord that's given their life to Jesus. If you talk to them, I guarantee you they'll change their whole day for you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time together. I know we covered a lot. I know it took a little while. Uh, But it's your word. It's not mine. And the cool part is we get to go back home And look at it and um, read through it and study it and know you better through it. Lord, thank you for the power to save. I love you, Lord. I pray that as we continue to worship for just a moment longer, Lord, that these thoughts don't drift away from us. That you are awesome, incredible, and amazing. And we ask these things in Christ's name.